You may be seated. <laughs> I had an associate once who prayed like that, and people are standing, and he just started preaching. People just kept standing. It was a funeral, and he didn't know what to do. People were not used to church, so they weren't really used to what they were supposed to do. They just kept standing. <laughs> they stood for about 15 minutes of that sermon. So here it was dark. I couldn't see. I'm glad you're seated. <clears throat> it's great to be back here with you. I'm from uh, now. I live in Rockford, Illinois. Uh, I was a free church pastor for over 40 years uh, in Deerfield, Illinois, and then Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, near Pittsburgh. And then back in, right by Trinity, a mile away from Trinity, Lincolnshire, for uh, 22 years to the day, and retired about five weeks before COVID, which was a great time to get out of Dodge. <laughs> so Susan and I now live there. And uh, it's great to be with you. I'm very appreciative of Dan. He's a good friend, and uh, you are a blessed people to have such a fine pastor. It's not too early to be thinking about Christmas. I, it is for me, actually. Uh, November 25th is too early for me to be thinking about Christmas, but uh, let's just kind of work with that because it's a good setup. I, I have a uh, kind of a weakness in my retirement, a, a little part of the world I didn't know anything about till I retired, and that's estate sales. Friday's estate sale day, I sit at the coffee shop, check them out online, see if there's anything I want to go see. I don't go to buy stuff. I rarely buy things. It's to look into people's um, lives. It's like being a voyeur. You walk in and walk around somebody's house. One thing that is always at every estate sale is Christmas decorations. Crazy how much Christmas decorations. And I, I don't mean to cast aspersions, but it's never the man who has collected all this stuff. There's piles of cute stuff. And I think, who, who, what's the future for this? And among those things are creches, manger scenes. We have one. You maybe have one. I had some folks in my church that collected them. I read about a place in Dayton, Ohio, a university, a Catholic university, that has a collection of them, 3,500 creches from all over the world. 3,500 of these things. It's kind of fun to scroll through and just look at them, but all kinds of stuff. And uh, I thought, these must have been estate sales. I don't know where they got all this stuff. <laughs> We're gonna look at a, a Christmas story today that I guarantee you is not represented in any one of those 3,500 creches. In fact, you put this out on your lawn and your neighbors are gonna protest to the police. Keep their kids away from your house. Don't let them see this. We'll get to that in a minute. You can turn to Revelation chapter 12. You've been studying Revelation at the hands of your courageous pastor. <laughs> Everybody always wants revelation. They have no idea what they're asking of us. Um, you have learned the revelation was not really written so we could work out timelines for the future. 
that'd be fun and we'd give it a go, but I, I grew up in the era of prophecy conferences. In our little church in South Dakota, every once in a while we would have a prophecy conference and some guy would come in and be a big banner across the whole front with all the events of the end times up there all plotted. It might have been right, I don't know, I, to this day I'm not sure if that was right or not, but I know this, that these visions in Revelation were not primarily given to John to uh, work out a timeline. They were given so that believers facing fearsome pressures by the world and the devil would persevere, that they'd be strengthened by what they read. I was a pastor and am still a pastor for a long time. And one of the things I know is that people who have sat in front of me as you are this morning, some have not persevered with Christ. So that concerns me. I felt no pressure more significantly than that of concern for our young people who sit in our youth groups and come to church and go off to college and suddenly have to figure out, am I going to believe this or not? Revelation is given to us to help us see what's really going on in this world and beyond and to help us to persevere in our faith. We need this so that we'll be faithful. Well, now to our text. Revelation 12 portrays epic scenes of Satan's efforts to steal away God's kingdom. This chapter, epic scenes of Satan's efforts to steal away God's kingdom. A kingdom requires three things. It requires a king, it requires territory, and it requires people. And in this, just, we're just going to look at 12 verses. In these verses, you're going to see how Satan tried to steal away all three of those things from God for Satan's own glory. Now back to the crash that you're never going to see in anybody's mantle. This is a Christmas story. A great sign appeared in heaven. It's a sign. It's not literal. I mean, I think John really saw something like this. He's trying to describe it, but it's, it's a sign. He saw a woman clothed with the sun with her feet on the moon. All right, uh, pull that up. Pull that up in your head. Make it really big. And she has 12 stars on her head like a crown. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Whoa, this is quite the scene. Wow. Then what happens? Well, then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and seven 
crowns on his head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. What is that about? The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. What's going to happen? And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. That's a big word in Revelation, the throne. The woman, meanwhile, fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Mm, that's pretty weird. See what I mean? Don't put that on your mantle. Scare the wits out of your kids on Christmas morning. There it is, the first defeat of Satan in this passage. And here it is, let me express it for you. Despite his scheming, Satan could not destroy God's Messiah. Despite his scheming, Satan could not destroy God's Messiah. The woman who gave birth here is not Mary. It is the nation of Israel personified in this sign by this woman. The, the symbols, the, the sun and the moon at her feet and the stars that make a crown, those are images drawn out of the Old Testament. The first place they show up is in one of those dreams that Joseph had back in Genesis. So this is a picture of the nation of Israel about to give birth to a child while Satan waits to devour it. Whoa. And when that doesn't happen, when the child is snatched up to heaven, to the throne of God, the woman is protected in the wilderness. It's not a great place to be, but it's a place of refuge, a place between death, like in Egypt, and the land of promises. That's where this woman goes. The dragon here, of course, represents Satan. We're told later in verse 9 that the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. That's who he is. Who leads the whole world astray. Those crazy pictures that no artist can capture. Seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on his head. Those are symbols in the Bible of earthly rule and power. I don't think the point is that there were seven particular kings who Satan controlled. I think it, this kind of perfect number, the perfect storm of kings. Horns like on, uh, well, like on this, are a symbol of power and danger. The crowns, of course, of ruling. All of those world powers who were uh, seeking to destroy the people of God 
were motivated by the enemy. And then there's that allusion to his tail sweeping a third of, of the stars out of the sky. I think that's a symbolic description of how Satan led uh, a great number of the angels of God into his control, that they followed him, and uh, these are the demons we speak of. It says there were a third of them. I don't know if that's meant to be taken literally or just how that works. Uh, Daniel saw something similar. Uh, it says, there's a phrase he uses in 810. It says, it threw some of the starry host down. In the Bible, when you see stars, the stars around our heads, these other starry, those are symbols of angels. It's, that's the language. It threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. Wow. And the child here, of course, is picturing Jesus Christ. We know that because it quotes uh, Psalm 2, verse 9, where it says, he's the one who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. What's that communicate to you? An iron scepter. Scepters weren't iron. Scepters were gold, and they have jewels on them, and they're symbols. This is like a scepter that's gonna, that means business, right? You don't want to get in the way of an iron scepter. And this is how the Messiah of God is going to rule. That's who this child is. And this picture of this son being snatched up to God and to his throne is helps us to see the drama behind the stories we know so well. So did the readers or hearers of this book the first time. John knew about Jesus and his death and resurrection and everything, but here's a, a whole different way of looking at it. Wow, came that close. Satan wanted to swallow alive the hopes of Israel their Messiah. Why? What's the big deal? Why is he so intent on that? Satan hates God. That's the bottom line. And so, in order to wrestle authority away from God, Satan wants to destroy the people God loves, which includes you and me. He doesn't care about you, when we feel the onslaught of Satan, it's not because he's got some special thing about you. He's out to get God. He's about to disgrace Jesus. And the people of God, Israel, were his enemy. In the decades, in your Bible, after Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, there's 400 years. We call them the silent years, biblically. But they weren't silent. This is when Israel was horribly persecuted. Crazy bad stuff happening under Antiochus. Uh, and finally, the story of the Maccabees and crazy stories. So it was out of this travail that the nation of Israel gave birth to the Messiah. That's what's being pictured here. And when this child is born, He's this close to getting swallowed up by the devil. Do you remember when he was born? Herod? Remember? The wise men and Herod? Uh, tell me, 
tell me where the child is born so I can go and worship him. And when they thwarted his plans, what did they do? What did Herod do? He killed the infants in Bethlehem. That close. God woke Mary and Joseph up and said, get out of Dodge now, tonight, leave. Just missed them. Later in Jesus' life, there was a, probably several incidents, but one that I remembered was when Jesus first preached in Nazareth, and they were so happy to hear him. Boy, local boy makes good. And then he, he condemns them, and they got angry with him, and they dragged him to a cliff to throw him off. Remember? Remember that story? And what did he do? Use superpowers? Well, not exactly. He just turned and walked right through them, and they couldn't stop him. It wasn't time. Snap, missed him. But then when it was God's time and God's place, he allowed Satan free reign to tempt and succeed in tempting Judas, Pilate, the crowds, the leaders of the Jews, the Romans. They all conspired together to kill the Messiah. And they succeeded. They killed him. And Jesus was as dead as dead can be. End of story. Grave is sealed. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. He was born again from the womb of the tomb. When Jesus came back to life, when he was raised to life, I shouldn't say he came back to life exactly. He was given new life. He wasn't really resuscitated. He was too dead to be resuscitated. It wasn't like the story of Lazarus or other stories in the Bible where dead people came back alive. He became a new Adam. The first Adam was built from the dust of the earth. The second Adam was made from the dust of death. And he became a new Adam. And people who are in Jesus are the, the descendants of the new Adam. Because like him, we are the immortals. <laughs> That's what he did. In this story, the woman flees to the desert. I'm not sure what that is picturing. It may be picturing the diaspora of the Jews. I don't know. But... The point is that the people of God, and remember now, as believers in Jesus, we are grafted into the people of God. We're part of Israel. And we are protected in this sort of wilderness time by God. It's not a great time. I don't want to live in the wilderness. You? I don't like the wilderness. But it's safe. We're safe there. Despite all the hardships, God is faithful. That is the picture. Jesus was exalted to heaven's highest place, resurrected, ascended to the throne of God, and the jaws of Satan snapped on nothing. Jesus is Lord, and he ever shall be. Satan will never get another chance to defeat him. That's strike one. 
The next verses portray Satan's unsuccessful effort to seize the Lord's territory. He couldn't get the king. Now he goes for the territory. Verses 7 to 9. Then war broke out in heaven. Now we're in heaven. That's where the battle is. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. Who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth. And his angels with him. Satan is not in hell. You hear that sometimes. Have these pictures of Satan roaming around in hell with his pitchfork. He isn't in hell. He's here. These two great archangels were arch enemies. And along with their vast armies, they battled against one another because Satan wants to seize God's territory, heaven and earth, starting with heaven. He wanted it for himself. These two, Michael and Lucifer, uh, Satan, were old enemies. Jude tells us they fought over the body of Moses, a whole other story. Daniel talks about them fighting in a vision he had. Michael wins because he's stronger. I think he's stronger because he is righteous and loyal to God, and there is strength in that. Whereas Satan is weakened by his pride and rebellion. We also saw that his army wasn't as large as the faithful angels who follow Michael. Satan loses this battle. The text says he's hurled down. That's a powerful word. This isn't a strategic retreat. <coughs> Excuse me. He's not just backing. He's thrown, hurled down. Uh, I don't know if this is an acceptable picture in church, but my mental picture is one of those from old westerns where somebody picks up the bad guy and throws him out the swinging doors of the saloon and he goes flying out into the dust. That's hurled down. That's the picture that came to my mind. It's stronger than that. There are two extraordinary passages in the Old Testament which seem to depict this very thing. One is in Ezekiel 38, and the other was Isaiah 14. They both are talking about worldly kings who God is going to destroy, and he uses language that leads the reader to think, you're talking about more than this king here. Take the one in Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 15. He's speaking about the arrogant king of Babylon and how God's going to destroy him. But he's also describing the diabolical archangel who is behind that king. Listen to these words. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. We call Satan Lucifer, light one. That's where it comes from. You have been cast down to earth. You who once laid low the nations. 
You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne, throne above the stars of God, angels of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. That's Mount Sinai. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. I can't quite sort out the timing of this stuff. There's an interesting scene in uh, the Gospel, uh, in Luke 10. Uh, Jesus has sent out his 72 disciples for the first time on their own little mission trip. And they come back and they are jazzed. They are excited. Luke says, they returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now this had never happened before. Demons were something they knew. They saw people who were demonized. Uh, you may have too and just not realized it. But they saw this. And they had this experience like no one had ever, ever had before. And they go, in the name of Jesus, come out of him. And bam, out they came. And people were well and sane and safe. <laughs> so they come back and they think, this was crazy. I mean, we healed people, but this is the real thing here. We had power over the powers of Satan. Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. Stop. He's not actually talking about literal snakes and scorpions. Don't do that. That proves nothing. The snakes and the scorpions are the offspring of the serpent. That's those demons that they cast out. I've given you authority to trample on them and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Wow. That'd be cool. That's you, friends. That's what Jesus has entrusted to us by the power of his name. Satan no longer has what you might say ground territory in heaven. But Ephesians 2.2 says that Satan now is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's where Satan is now. But ultimately, what this text is telling us is he couldn't conquer heaven, and in the end, he can't hold earth. In the end, Christ will see that, according to Revelation 20.10, Satan is thrown into the lake of burning sulfur to be tormented day and night forever and ever. For all his high power, from considering the highest place he came from, Satan will fall farther and lose more than any other creature in God's universe. He will be left in the end with nothing, tormented forever. 
Remember those kingdom elements I told you about. Satan cannot devour God's king, strike one. He cannot conquer God's territory on heaven or earth, strike two. And now we come finally to some words about us, about God's people. Verses 10 to 12, as you can see, if you see this in a Bible, uh, looks like a poem or a hymn. It's one of the hymns of heaven, you might say. Now I heard a loud voice. This is one of those things you see in Revelation or here. A loud voice announcing like a herald. Hear ye, hear ye. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom, the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of the brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night before God has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Oh, that's where we live. On earth, among the fury of Satan. But, point number three, despite his accusations, Satan cannot condemn the redeemed of the Lord. Satan cannot condemn the redeemed of the Lord. As you saw there, it says, now have come these things. That's saying that because Satan attempted to block the salvation the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his, of his Messiah. That's what he was trying to do, right? He was trying to block that. Now, Satan attacks us on numerous fronts. That's why we're told to wear the full armor of God. But his most basic attack against the people of God is accusation. He takes us to court, to God's own High court. Satan is a ruthless prosecutor. And he has used God's good law of righteousness against us and against the Lord. And we don't have a leg to stand on. We're dead to rights. And the court of the high judge accused by Satan himself, our prosecutor. It's as if he says to God, you cannot let these people into your kingdom. They have broken your laws and must be punished. They have rebelled against you. Judge, as powerful as you may be, you do not have the power to let sinners go free. You cannot do that and be who you are. 
And you certainly cannot build a kingdom of people who are in rebellion against you. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Not even the authority of the mighty Messiah can fix that. That was Satan's case against you and me, and he had, he had us dead to rights. All we could do is plead guilty, face the consequences, hell, death, until Christ died to pay for our sins. The text says, the accuser of our brothers and sisters, of you and me, who accuses them before our God night and day, perpetually, constantly. <laughs> Court is always in session. He has been hurled down. Satan uses three strategies against us. He accuses us of sins we've committed. He deceives us, and he threatens us with death. So it's a little startling to read there in verse 11. They, that's us, the brothers and sisters, have triumphed over him. Now, I understand how the mighty God, the Messiah, and the and how they could triumph. I can understand how Michael and his angels were able to triumph. I'm cheering. I'm all for that. But to say that we have triumphed over him? Boy, that's kind of a stretch. I mean, look at yourselves. <laughs> right? We have triumphed over Satan? Really? This hymn celebrates our defenses. What we did. What worked. What we have still to this day. This is how you and I, day to day, deal with Satan. And you better be aware of him. I can tell you, coming to preach on this text this morning, I've been very aware. This, I remember early this week thinking, oh man, I know what happens when I preach about Satan. Things can go off the rails if we're not careful. You can get sick or not sleep or something. So I've really prayed and other people have prayed. And I'm grateful for the protection I have enjoyed. So three defenses. Our first one is this. Our defense against Satan's accusations is the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb. Now the text that we grip on, onto for this is from Colossians. There's multiple ones, but Colossians 2, 13 to 15. He says, when you were dead, in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You weren't even in a covenant with God. You were dead doubly. God made you alive with Christ. How did he do that? Well, he forgave all your sins. And he canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. That's what Satan was using which stood against us and condemned us. How did he do that? He took it away, that charge. 
and he nailed it to the cross where Jesus died for us, where he shed his blood, where it was covered by the blood of the lamb. And having disarmed the powers and authorities by doing that, now they don't have a hold on you. They got nothing on you. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by a cross. Before it was some great battle in heaven. Here it's the cross. Our only defense, and it is unassailable, is that Christ has forgiven us once and for all, that the blood of the Lamb cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But you have to be aggressive in using that defense. You have to say to Satan, you don't have a hold on me. Jesus died for my sin. It's not because I'm righteous. It's not because I can claim that I'm good enough. I remember a woman I visited in the hospital. She, they kept her overnight. She'd had a miscarriage. And she was obviously distraught. But she said to me, I must have done something terrible to deserve this. I said, well, I don't know if you've done anything terrible or not. But I know, and you have sung, that Jesus paid it all. All your sins, whether you've done anything terrible or not, it's all paid for. This is a hard enough thing to go through without saying, I deserved it. Oh, you might have, but it's paid for. Jesus paid it all. No condemnation. Now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. So bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Our second defense is against Satan's deceit. He's a liar. That's what Jesus called him. He's a liar. He cannot tell the truth. Every word he said is a lie, and he will lie to you. And how do we handle that? It says, by the word of our testimony. Now, we have testimonies of our faith, how we came to Jesus. I don't think that's primarily what's met here. He means our testimony that I have trusted the word of God. This is the word of God. Jesus used the word of God in the wilderness. Thus says the Lord. This is the word of our testimony. Our defense against Satan is what Scripture says. Greater is he who is in you than who he who is in the world. You have no claim over me. To defeat Satan, know and trust and say God's truth. Finally, our defense against Satan's threat of death is that we don't shrink from death. It says that. They do not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Satan carries another name, the destroyer. Death has always been his most powerful weapon. And people had no defense against it. Nobody could not die. And it was the fear of death. Or sometimes the idiocy about death. I listened to somebody this week talking about death and these crazy ideas about it afterwards. I go, are you nuts? 
We go through death, not only when our bodies give out, but in other ways, right? Some of you are in dying times right now. Something inside you is dying. You have a great loss, a painful or shameful, humbling, terrible weakness. Don't love your lives so much as to shrink from that death, but take up your cross and follow Jesus. Satan has no power against Christians who know what Christ can do with death. Henry Nouwen told the story about a Lutheran uh, bishop during World War II who was arrested by the Nazis and kept in a concentration camp. And the SS officer was beating him and beating him. He wanted more names, I think. And this man wouldn't say anything. And it got, it was brutal. Finally, the infuriated officer pounding his victim with even harder blows, shrieked, but don't you know that I can kill you? And the bishop looked in the eyes of his torturer and said, yes, I know, do what you want, but I have already died. That has been the secret of all the Christian martyrs, all the Christian sufferers, do what you want. I've already died. For Christians, there's this other thing about death. It's not just that we pass through it. It's that death by Jesus is co-opted. That is, what is meant to destroy us, he turns the tables and it becomes our friend. These dear ones who died in your church this week, Ruth and Barb, death wasn't the end. I read this, I, I just thought this was so wonderful. Do you remember hearing these words? These are by John Donne from the 1600s in a little poem. He said, death be not proud, for some have called you mighty and dreadful, but thou art not so. Thomas Brooks was a Puritan, and he wrote this. This is so great. I'll put it up so you can track with it. Remember this. Death does that in a moment which no graces, no Christian graces, no Christian duties, nor any ordinances, communion, baptism, could do for a man all his lifetime. Death frees a man from those diseases and corruptions and temptations that no duties or graces nor ordinances could do. Every prayer then shall have its answer. All hungering and thirsting shall be filled and satisfied. Every sigh and groan and tear that has fallen from the saint's eyes shall then be recompensed. That's not death, but life, which joins a dying man to Christ. So Satan, strike three. You're out. Verse 12 concludes with the hymn, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Oh, we've talked about those who dwell in them. Rejoice, O God our Father, for what you have done. Rejoice, Christ our Lamb, for the blood that covers us. Rejoice, Spirit of God, our constant companion and advocate. 
Rejoice, Michael, and all you mighty angels of heaven who have fought for us, as well as the honor of God. Your terrible battle was not in vain. Rejoice, you white-robed saints who gather there in paradise and wait for the day when we are all brought home together. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. Rejoice. Let us pray. <clears throat> 